Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, Mike. Hi, Gene. How are you? I'm, I'm great. I'm great. Happy Monday. How are you? I'm very good. I'm so excited about tonight's show. You know what? You're not the only one. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, welcome, everybody. Welcome to November 2nd. Uh, hope you had a great Halloween. Uh, Mike, did you do any trick-or-treating? I weekend? did. I did. I got about 50 pounds of, of candy, and I've been, I haven't slept since. Great. We uh we had absolutely no kids on our block because my wife this year decided to give out pretzels instead uh, of candy. So there's a little a network uh that all the kids tell each other, yes. oh, don't go to that house. So we have 40 bags of, of pretzels now that we have to do something with. <laughs> but uh we hope everybody was safe. We know it was a weird, it was definitely a weird uh night. Uh, but we hope everybody made it through well. Um, what about the rest of the week? Did you do anything else? The rest no, of the week? That, that's that's pretty much it. I was hyped up on my sugar, and then uh, that's that's pretty much it. And I I've watched been, a Halloween movie. I, I've been hyped up on sugar for days because I had a weekend of uh, of goodness. Finally, yeah. after uh, all the stuff we've been going through, you know, nightclubs closed, private parties not working. Uh, we had three nice days, and. I'd like to share them with you and, and all our viewers and our people listening on YouTube. Um, so uh, uh, Friday night, uh, my wife and I was very honored 
to be in the wedding party of one of my dearest friends, a gentleman now by the name of Victorio, who's a singer. Uh, he does a great Tom Jones. We work together and he uh, graced my wife and I uh, with being in his and Gia's wedding. So that was held on Friday. Uh, wonderful. And of course, the sugar was uh, <laughs> racing with the wedding cake. And then Saturday, we went out to dinner to a German restaurant in Queens. Uh, I got hyped up on sugar again. And then yesterday, I was uh, very pleased to be asked to be the uh, entertainment at a friend of mine's birthday party, which was a Mardi Gras theme. Uh, so this young lady, Lynn, <laughs> she uh, she asked me to dress Mardi Gras, but then she gave me the purple pimp hat. So right there, I'm Big Daddy Jean, the New Orleans Italian pimp. Yeah, I did. I did have some questions about that, but you, I guess you just you yeah, just, you just answered them. I wanted to get it out of the way, but uh, we want to uh, say happy birthday to Lynn yesterday. Happy birthday today to our good friend, Bobby Anselmo, uh, Boxer Bobby, who's with us all the week, just had knee surgery, so he might not be on. He might be under the medication. Uh, and also this week, Howard, it's Howard's birthday on uh, Friday. Everybody likes shout outs, so we're going to do them. And last week, you might remember me mentioning that my little godson was going in for surgery. Yes. Five-year-old Leo. He's doing fabulous. It wasn't a big, big surgery, but whenever a child goes in, we always want to say extra pass. So Leo is doing phenomenal. So very good. Everybody, very good. thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your well wishes. Very quickly, our sponsors. Can we bring them up, Mike? Sure can. Uh, first off, Pure Organic Dry Cleaners, 3166 East Tremont Avenue. Mention my podcast to Wally. Pay for three items. Get the fourth one done free. Dream Destinations Travel, our birthday friend Howard and his lovely wife Karen, uh, they have a wonderful uh, travel agency, uh, so you mentioned our podcast, get a $50 or $100 gift certificate, depending on the package that you uh, pick. Right, that's great. All right. For those of you that are into CBD, medicine, and oils, uh, sweetheal.com, mention my name, get 20% off your order. And a free gift over $50. They're going to give you a free gift. Nice. And last but not least, the creative CPA, our friend Francisco, comes up with great solutions for your tax uh, and your estate planning. As you see, everything is listed. If you don't get it now, you could go to our page, Reminiscing with Gene DiNapoli, and look at the offers tab, and you could see our sponsors. Very good. Very also, good. check us out on YouTube. Yep, search for Gene DiNapoli. Yeah. And hit the subscribe button in case, you know, for Facebook, you never know right. when it's on or off. Right, and very important, too, with Facebook, reminiscing with Gene DiNapoli, please like it and share it, and, you know, we'll build a community that way, and so you'll, you'll never miss a show and see the great guests that are coming and, up. And all these past shows are on uh, the page and on YouTube, so please, we had some great guests. Every great show has been great. We have not hit any duds, and tonight, Mike is no exception. Oh, it's a great show. Uh, you know, Mike, I've asked all my friends over the past eight weeks to come and do this for me. And then I started to say, can't just rely on my friends. I got to reach out to some people who I don't know. And this gentleman is our first new friend uh, <laughs> because he is so gracious enough to 
do this show for us and also to do it at a time frame, which is not the norm. So, Mike, as we do every week, will you please bring in our guest, the one and only songwriter, singer, and all-around showman, Mr. Billy Vera, ladies and gentlemen. Bring him in. Hi, Billy. Hi, man. Good to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you here, and what an honor. You know, you are our first foray into the pop uh, songs. Uh, we've had doo-wop. We had an Elvis guy. We had Italian. We had an actor. Uh, but I cannot think of somebody that I would rather start this off with than a guy who, although you started many, many years ago, uh, you were considered an overnight sensation in 1987. <laughs> <laughs> but your career actually started about 25 years before that when uh, you did something the opposite. Normally, people are born in New York, go to California. You were born in California and came to New York to be raised and lived. Uh, how did that come about? Well, my dad was uh, stationed at uh, March Field, the Air Force Base, or as they used to call it during World War II, the Army Air Corps Base in uh, Riverside, California. So I was born there. And then he got hurt uh, on his way to get shipped out of, over to the South Pacific. He was a B-24 pilot. Wow. So uh, they had him recover in uh, Springfield, Missouri, where my mother sang on the local radio station there to bring in some money. And her guitar player was a young fellow named Chad Atkins. Oh. And, uh, and then, then after he got well, we went to Cincinnati for five years where he had worked before the war at a radio station called WLW. And a lot of stars came off of that station because it had a, a 50,000 watt clear channel. You could hear it from Toronto to Brazil. Wow. 40 states. But dig this, some of the stars that were made on WLW. Rosemary Clooney, Doris Day, Andy Williams, the Mills Brothers, Fats Waller, Merle Travis, Rod Serling, and 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 more. Never heard of them. <laughs> Never heard of any of them. All small timers. <laughs> so after that, uh, we went to New York, and uh, and and they they wanted to try there, and my dad got a gig on NBC uh, in New York as a radio announcer, television announcer, where he stayed for thirty years, and then my mom. Um, she tried for a while to be a solo singer and didn't quite make it. So she be, she learned how to sight read music, became a background singer, and she became one of the Ray Charles singers on the Perry Como show uh, and the Frankie Lane show and the Pat Boone show. So that was that was it. That, that's how I got to New York. So so you are really a stage child. You, you're really a, a child of the business. Oh, yeah, show business. You know, there's something about... Uh, I, People that, who who grew up in show business families, you know, you learn, you learn punctuality, you learn how to, you know, how to behave yourself, you know, you learn professionalism at a very young age, and um, that that helped me an awful awful lot. You know, it was from a different era. You know, people that were raised by show business people like yourself, uh, there was never a word called ego or diva. Uh, it seems that these people that come out of nowhere 
and achieve overnight stardom, whether it's through MTV or YouTube, they have egos and they yeah, have they spend all their money. You know, they spend all their money real quick. Right. You know, they're buying yeah. the big Cadillac. They're buying the house for grandma, you know. Right. They, they, they do stupid things. When I went into voiceovers many years later, I asked my dad, I said, you got any advice for me? And he said, yeah, show up early, work quickly, have no opinions, and don't give anybody any crap. And that was, that was it. And my mother's advice was, if you're going to be in show business, remember, it's, it's, it's a business of peaks and valleys. One year you'll make a bundle, next year you'll make nothing. She said, so always live below your means. And boy, that saved me more than I can wow. tell you. That, that's great advice. You know, my father was a gambler by trade. He used to travel all over the world uh -huh. shooting shooting dice. Uh, unfortunately, he never learned that lesson because one day we we would have a million dollars and two months later we were broke. Uh, yeah. So I wish your father would have met my father and given him some constrictive criticism. Well, that's the way it is with gamblers. You know, that's the yeah. nature of the beast. True. So yeah. now 1962, you wind up uh, fronting a group called uh, the Night Riders. Uh, was that your first foray in a group? Was that your first year, 62, 61? Well, I was. I graduated high school from uh, Archbishop Stepanak High School in, yes. uh, in 62. But before that, uh, it was a little local band called the Pharaohs. And we got kind of famous locally. Uh, we didn't make any records. But uh, we we were well known, you know, around right. Westchester and, and sure. Connecticut. And uh, but then these guys, the the uh, night riders, they were real professionals. They played in nightclubs, you know. And so uh, yeah, there's a picture of them. Yeah. And uh, they they saw me playing at a club in Portchester called the OPG, the Old Post Grill, on the wow. border of Greenwich. <laughs> and. Uh, and and the guitar player who was kind of like the leader, he said, he said, they spoke to me after I came off the stage. He says, he says, you're the coolest guy I ever saw in my life. He <laughs> said, we're getting ready to fire our singer. And uh, we we have a lot of gigs. We we can we'll make more money for you than the Pharaohs. Wow. Well, a couple of the Pharaohs were going away to college. You know, they were older than me, so I joined them and. Uh, and, you know, they hustled up this kid named Vinny Super, who uh, who put up some money so we could make a record. And that record you made was an Eddie James written song, My Heart Cries. Are we correct? Well, we didn't know that. Right. The, the previous singer told me that he wrote the song for me. So <laughs> we went to the studio and we recorded it. And, and luckily, when we started doing it in the club, there was a club in, in Hartsdale called the, uh, the 1220 Club. Yes, of course. And this girl came up to me and she says, oh, your record's on a jukebox in the Bronx at John's Paradise. I said, no, the record's not out yet. She said, well, it's on the jukebox. So we go down to John's Paradise and there's Ed and Harvey, Harvey Fuqua of the Moonglows. Right. Yeah. Uh, their record. I said, oh, I, so I called up the record company and said, hey, listen, this guy, this jerk didn't write the song. It was written by somebody else, and it was written by Harvey and Etta, gotcha. who I later got to know. You know, years later, Etta recorded one of my songs. Yes, 
Yes. Uh, yeah. Hey, Mike, can we play about 20, 30 seconds of My Heart Cries, please? Yeah. Let's play a little bit for our listeners. There's a new, new commercial for you. Yeah. <laughs> no product placement. <laughs> We're not on the air now, right? I don't think so. I don't hear anything. Oh, oh. So we keep the. Well, you know, years later, I met Harvey. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're not, you're not hearing that, Gene? No, Mike. Okay, that's it. There it there is. There we go. I was lost in a world of dreams, counting every star. You know, one of the background singers is it? Can they hear me? Yeah. One of the background singers is another Westchester guy from New Rochelle, another Stepanak guy named Bruce Bruno. And Bruce had a, a hit record uh, called uh, Hey Little One. And then he had the original version before Jimmy Clanton of Venus in Blue Jeans. Wow. And so that's that that high voice on in the background is Bruce. Wow, that's great. You know what I love uh, people say about this show, Billy, is that we, we don't just hop on the cliche one or two songs. We, we let people know everything about what we can. And when I told somebody that you had a doo-wop record, they said, I, I, I want to hear it. So I put them to uh, YouTube and they said, I, I downloaded it. I played it 20 times in a week. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, I hope you start to see some uh, some checks from some of the early stuff. Uh, well, you know, you know, Gus Gossard, who had a radio show back in the '70s, he used to play at My Heart Cries on on his show all the time. Right. Yeah. My uh, my father, who lives in uh, South Carolina, just told me that the 1220 Club was owned by my aunt Josie, uh, who was married to my uncle Mitty Carpenito. It was Izzo and Josie's cousin. So yeah, if you write Izzo down, look what it looks like. It looks like it looks like twelve twenty. Twelve twenty. So those were my distant cousins, which I didn't but know. They had sold the club by the time we worked there to somebody named to Silverheart. Okay. It was run by a woman named Estelle Silverheart. Wow. And her 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 uh, her son, one of her seven sons, by the way, who also lived up in Orchard Hill. Uh, is now a, a big time uh, music uh, talent agent or manager. Really? Melba Moore and, and some oh, big people sure. out here in LA, Jerry Silverheart. Wow. Fabulous. Uh, so then you, you were writing songs at this time, and uh, some of your songs went on to be recorded by uh, Barbara Lewis, Fats Domino, Shirelles, and the great Ricky Nelson. Um, yeah, the first we, song I ever took to a publisher got recorded by Ricky Nelson. I said, wow, what an easy business this is. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about beginner's luck. Right. But it became a little hit record for him. Yes, yes it was definitely a little hit record. And then you wrote something uh, that Robert Plant covered, which is really a different stretch from the doo-wop pop to Robert Plant. So that song, Don't Look Back, uh, was that written with Robert Plant in mind? No. No, I was a, I was a, I became a professional songwriter at, at that point. And then part of being a professional songwriter is you, 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 they lock you up in a little room and your boss comes in and he says, uh, okay, uh, Billy, uh, 
the Shirelles are recording next week. Write something for them. Or Tony Bennett's recording next week. So you got to write. You got to learn how to write. It's like being an actor. You got to learn how to write from that person's point of view. The kind of stories they like to tell. The kind of range they have. You know, some singers have a range of six notes, and some people like Patti LaBelle have a wide range. So you know, there's a lot of things to take into consideration. So this particular day, there was a soul singer named Chuck Jackson, and I was a big fan of Chuck's. So he said, Chuck Jackson's coming up for a date. He said, can you come up with something for him? So uh, I, 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 I said, well, what Chuck? He hasn't had a hit in a while. Hmm. Well, he's, a, he's got that whiskey voice. You know, he, he, he could really preach. So I, I, I used this, this device, uh, a songwriting device that I heard in a, in a blues record uh, by Little Junior Parker called Driving Wheel, where in the middle of the song, the music stops and he just starts to preach. So I did that and I and and I and then we the publisher presented it to Chuck Jackson's producer and they decided not to do the song. So then they took it around and, and this new group from uh New England called The Remains recorded it. And it it's it wasn't a hit, but it became this cult record, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh unbeknownst to me, became famous in certain underground circles. And then that's how Robert Plant eventually got it. But uh, yeah, it's, it was one of those, just one of those songs, you know? So when, when you write songs for people of your genre, and then a guy that's totally opposite Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Record something. What's the feeling you get uh, when a hard rocker records something that you made for a soulful singer or somebody of like Ricky Nelson, a popish thing. What kind of feeling does that give you? Well, the song that I wrote for, I didn't write it for Ricky. You know, I, no, I wrote yeah, it no. with this new girl in mind named Dionne Warwick. She was a brand new girl. And I, I said, boy, she's really good. I'm going to write something for her. And of course she didn't, I was a new kid on the block. So she ended up not doing it. And uh, then the publisher called me up a couple weeks later. He says, hey, I got a, I got a record on one of your songs that I, you gave me. I said, really? Which one? He said, don't mean old world. I said, oh, did you, did you give me that girl, Dionne Warwick? He said, no, no, but I got you, Ricky Nelson. I said, Ricky Nelson, he's white. <laughs> he said, you ungrateful little putz. He said, Ricky's going to do your song five weeks in a row on the Ozzy and Harriet show. Man, you're going to make a bundle of money. You ungrateful little schmuck. 
So I, you know, I learned my lesson there. <laughs> and Ricky did a great job of it, you know. He did. He did. Uh, yeah. Got a comment. I got it. This is something that has not been said in our previous shows. Uh, monster guest. You are a monster guest. <laughs> so that should make you. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah. Well, this is our, our listeners and they really, they really appreciate hearing stories from so-called the horse's mouth. So now I'm, yeah, I'm going to fast forward to a very problematic time in the country. I was only a year old in 1967, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. but you decided to do something which really, in my opinion, could have backfired on you, but it didn't. You wound up doing a duet called Storybook Children with a gospel singer named Judy Clay. And uh, were you apprehensive? Did you worry about what the repercussions between a black and white singer in the midst of civil unrest could have done? Not really, you know, because I, I was, I was playing at this club up in, uh, on the border of Greenwich in a little town called Banksville, New York, near Arm Armock, called the Country House, later known as the Deercrest Inn, and and we played there for four years every weekend, <laughs> and. We can't get gigs here once every four years. Right. And you played every week for four Well, those are the days, you know? Yeah. So we would play two dance sets, and then they'd bring in hit record acts, one on Friday, one on Saturday. Wow. And then we'd back them up. And we were we were really a, a, a terrific backup band because all the guys in my band could read, for one thing, unlike most of the club musicians who couldn't read a note. So we might be playing for Patti LaBelle, the Bluebells on Friday and Little Anthony and the Imperials on Saturday. You know, it was, it was, it was a great learning experience. And um, I forget, why did you, why did you, what did you ask me that I was going to- About being the black and white duo. Oh, yeah, yeah. So all the performers, almost all the performers that we played with up there were black. So I got to know everybody, you know? And I, I, I became sort of part of that, that, that world. You know, I was married to a black girl. I won't say woman because we were 20. I was 21 and she was 22. You know, you're, you're not a you're not a, a woman until you're 25. Oh, OK. You're not a man until you're 45. <laughs> I always say so. I, I didn't feel any any uh, any trepidation about that. But the we, the way the song got written was I at, at the publishing company I worked at. They put me under the wing of, of another Stepan Act guy named Chip Taylor, oh. whose whose brother is John Voigt, the actor. Yes. Chip's real name is Wes Voigt, but he goes by Chip Taylor. So Chip was my mentor as a songwriter. And the first song we wrote together became a hit for Barbara Lewis, the soul singer, called Make Me Belong to You. Yes. So that put us in with, gave us an in with Atlantic Records which was my dream label. You know, I, all my favorite artists were on Atlantic, you know, Ray Charles, uh, Bobby Darren, the coasters, the drift, excuse me, the drifters. So we, we, we decided to write a, a, a duet record for a couple of Atlantic artists, which Storybook Children was, and we made a demo right. with some girl from White Plains uh, who, who used to hang around the band. So we go up to Jerry Wexler, who was the big, big, you know, big cheese at Atlantic. We play him the demo and he loved it. He's 
pounded his fist on the desk. He says, man, this is a smash. He said, get rid of the girl and I'll record you on Atlantic Records. So now I had to find another girl. Well, also on Atlantic at that time was Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. And one of the girls in the group, Nona Hendricks, I was friendly with Patti and the, and the group. Nona had a voice that I felt would blend well with mine. Mm. So I, I called her up in Philadelphia and I said, hey, Nona, you want to make a record with me it's for Atlantic? You know, you guys are already on Atlantic, so there's no contractual problems. So she said, yeah, I'd love to. So we, we recorded the song. Then their manager gets into the act and he's afraid that the group would break up if Nona and I had a hit. But the girls wanted us to do it because they, the manager was too cheap to hire a guitar player and they figured, and their songs were really hard. Yes. They, they, they did Danny Boy and D flat. You know, you'll never walk alone and be natural. You know, I mean, they said, they said there's only two bands in the whole Eastern seaboard that could play our music, right? You and, and this band from, uh, from uh, Pittsburgh called the Magnificent Men. Anyway, so Nona and I record the storybook children and the manager didn't want us to do it. So then we had to audition a whole bunch of other girls. We go through about 20 girls who all sounded like they should be doing Stephen Sondheim songs. Wrong. So finally Wexler calls up. He says, listen, we just signed this girl, Judy Clay. She's a cousin of Dion Warwick. She sang in the same gospel group with Dion and Dee Dee and Sissy Houston and give her, give her an audition. So she comes in and she's like 14 months pregnant, you know, and she got a chip on her shoulder the size of Wyoming. And, and cause all the rest of them had made it already. And, and Judy was, was the lead singer in the gospel group and she hadn't made a hit record yet. So they after she left, they said, man, she sings great, but can you handle that attitude? I said, yeah, I got a sister like that, you know, mm -hmm. I can handle her. Here's a little bit of a, here's a little bit of a storybook children, Gene. Yeah, play a little bit. You've got your world and I've got mine and it's a shame to grown up worlds that will never be the same Why can't we be like storybook children Fabulous Fabulous that, that, I'll tell you Billy that's uh, so, so again, you were saying that you had a sister with an attitude. Well, that was it. And I got along very well with Judy. You know, we, right. we remained friends until she passed away about 10 years ago. Anyway, so nobody had seen our picture because they, they didn't, you know, in those days, you didn't make an album until you already had a hit record. Okay. So, so there was no pictures of it. So we get a gig at the Apollo Theater, which for me was a dream come true. I had been a customer at the Apollo, you know, I, I was there the night in the audience, the night James Brown made that Live at the Apollo album. So we get to the theater for rehearsal. In those days, you did a seven day week, five shows a day. And Honey Coles, who's the stage manager, he says, you know, Harlem hasn't seen you yet, meaning me. He said, uh, I got an idea. 
He said, Judy, you enter from stage right, and Billy, you enter from stage left. And you let her take three steps out from the wings before you make your entrance and watch what happens. <laughs> so I did. I counted one, two, three, enter. 1,500 people gasp. <laughs> and I hear them out there going, that's him? That's him? Because the record was already like number one on the black stations, you know? And, and, and that little skinny white boy, that's him? And we, we went over like gangbusters, you know? So he comes up, Honey comes up to our dressing room after the first show. He says, uh, listen, I'm going to change up the show. I'm going to put you on right before the star. He says, because ain't nobody going to follow you two, man. Wow. You know, so that became our spot, you know, uh, you know, right before the star. I, I think it was well received because uh, if my memory serves me right, I believe you're on the wall at the mural at the Apollo. Correct. I, I, I didn't know that until about 20 years later. I was producing Lou Rawls. And uh, Lou had a, a benefit to do at the Apollo. So we go up to Rayo's for dinner. And then we go over to the Apollo. And, and, and we went in the stage door. And there's like the, everybody's shoulder to shoulder there, you know, in the, in the little vestibule. And there's, there's Ralph Cooper. If you don't know who Ralph Cooper was, he was a famous black actor who was extremely well known in Harlem. And he's, he's talking to Lou, he's talking to Lou, looking over Lou's shoulder at me like, like I'm the only white guy there, you know. And finally, you know, because I looked different 20 years later, you know, I was a few pounds heavier and <laughs> no, no hair, you know. He says, Billy Vera. He says, come here, boy. And he throws his arms around me. And he says, I want everybody here to know who this man is and what he did for our people. He says, at a time when there was one month after Martin Luther King got killed, riots going on in Newark, New Jersey, across the river. He said, and he was on that stage, him and Judy Clay. He says, your picture is on the wall downstairs, and it will always be there forever. And I'll tell you something, man. I, I almost lost my, I almost lost it, man. I was so moved by, by him saying that, you know. Because, you know, you don't, you do something, you don't think that people are going to remember. You know, a lot of things, a lot of time goes by. Well, that's, that's some accolade. And I think if you did nothing else in your career, that is the one thing you should take and be most proud of. Uh, well, so, thank you. Thank you me. know what, Billy? Uh, I'm an entertainer myself, and I play it close to the hip because I don't want to offend people. But when people like you... Or uh, in 1967, when Petula Clark and Harry Belafonte uh, did the show, and they took the chance on holding hands. When you guys do things like that, it, it shows the humanity uh, in people that is so often misjudged because you're famous or because you do things entertaining-wise. You're not considered a civil activist or a personal activist, but it's more so when entertainers do it because you could reach the masses. You know, if a guy at the gas station has a, a, an African-American wife or husband or adopt, that's the guy at the gas station. Only seven people are going to know it. But when somebody like you does something like that, it goes worldwide. So well, I, I, you should be I, very I wanna, proud of that. I want to emphasize, we weren't trying to make any statement. Right. 
You know, we weren't trying to make a big deal out of it. We just went there and sang because she was the one that had the, the, the voice that we figured fit with mine better. Right. You know, I mean, it could have been a white chick just as, just as easily. Right. But as it turned out, in the eyes of many, it became a big deal. Absolutely. You Absolutely. Know? And if anybody likes what we're playing here for 10, 20, 30 seconds, please check it out on YouTube. I'm sure Billy's records are still available in the CD form, so you'll hear the full versions. Uh, we have some great comments, uh, so we can't play the entire song. It would get deleted off YouTube, uh, uh, Facebook, and we would wind up in problematic uh, so we don't want to do that. We just want to give people a little taste. So uh, the 70s come along and you're primarily songwriting or primarily nightclubbing. What is the main thing that Billy Vera is doing in the well, 70s? In the 70s, you know, the music changed drastically. Uh, and I, I just went through a terrible period. I, I couldn't figure out where I could fit in. You know, I, I couldn't be a heavy metal guy. Yeah. I was a soul singer. I couldn't be a, a, a wimpy singer songwriter, you know, one of those guys. Right. And there was just no place to fit. So I, I ended up doing a lot of survival gigs uh -huh. with, with my band. Yeah. You know, well, you know, one one of those survival gigs is, is probably the biggest survival gig that we know. But in June of 1972, uh, for two weekends, Madison Square Garden rocked. The foundation, because on June 9th through the 11th, Elvis Presley played the Garden for four shows. But a week before that, you were instrumental in raising the roof off the Garden by being the supporting band for the reunion of New York's own Dion and the Belmonts. Yeah. What? What? How did that happen? Well, at that in the early 70s, there was an oldies revival in New York. And we did a lot of, my band got hired to do a lot of the shows. We did 13 shows at the Academy of Music, all doo-wop shows. And then when Richard Nader uh, was finally able to talk Dion and the Belmonts into getting back together on the same stage, uh, they said, yeah, we'll do it, but we don't like your band. You know, we'll only do it if, if you'll hire Billy to back us up. So we did that. And it ended up being on an album, you know, uh, on Warner Brothers. Sure. Uh, that uh, still is in print. And boy, I'll tell you, I'll never forget it. Because when he announced, ladies and gentlemen, I got them back together. Dion said yes. The Belmont said yes. I heard the biggest applause and stomping of feet that I ever heard in my life. I mean, I thought the I thought the floor was going to break. It was it was the most outrageously loud audience response I ever heard in my life. Let me uh, let me tell you the names if you don't remember on that show. I don't know if you have a poster, but you backed up the entire show. Am I correct? No, 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 no. That that time when we played the Academy of Music, we backed up the entire show. But on on this show, we only did Dion and the Belmonts. Well, you were in good company that night. Uh, with Little Richard, Lloyd Price, the Cleftones, mm -hmm. Danny and the Juniors, the Exciters, one of my favorites, Shirley and Lee. Oh, man. Yeah. They were so nice. I, I was a big fan of Shirley and Lee. Yeah. 
Well, I knew all those acts, and I had backed right. up most of those acts. Not not Richard, because he always had his own band. And Lloyd, I did back up Lloyd Price one time. You know, he was such a professional. You know, in the old, old, old days, in the 50s and the 40s, the it was it was commonplace for the, the the star to tip the band leader. But these acts, most of them, they, they they came out of the woodwork. They hadn't worked in show business in 10, 15 years, you know, so they didn't have any money. They were most of them were bagging groceries at the supermarket, right. you know. So I, you didn't expect a tip from them. But Lloyd, who who was a very good businessman. Yes. He made a lot of money. Absolutely. But at the end of the show, end of the night, he, he laid $100 on me, man, out of his own pocket. And I thought that was such a classy thing to do. You know? Absolutely. There's one guy that made more money outside of music than he made in music. Oh, and now, man, he, he real estate, all kinds of stuff he did. Yeah, absolutely. So you picked up your survival gigs. And you you were still writing a little bit at that I time? Would still, I would still write, but nobody was interested in signing me. Steve Cropper from Booker T and the MGs, he, he brought me down to Memphis to, to make an album down there, record with him down there. I, I got to sing background, not harmony with Jerry Lee Lewis on a record mm -hmm. that he was producing. I, I was playing, uh, working as the Shirelles conductor for a couple of years. And when Ronnie Spector left uh, Phil Spector, her husband, uh, she hired me to, to be her conductor. Right. And I did that for a while, um, and then and then played you know just played clubs from here to Jersey to Connecticut to all, all over, until right. until and we were playing in Jersey one night at a Ramada Inn. You talk about a low point in your career, right? Now, if, if you've ever played a Ramada Inn, you know. You get people on Friday and Saturday, and during the week, you're playing to three businessmen who hate you. Yes. Because the waitress is looking at you instead of them. <laughs> right? So I, it was like a Tuesday or Wednesday night, and the waitress comes over to me after the set, and she says, uh, she says that fellow over there with his wife would like a word with you. I said, okay. And I go over to the guy, and the guy shakes my hand. He says, L. Russell Brown, I wrote Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. And I said, oh, how nice for you, you know. <laughs> and uh, and he says, you know, Vera, he said, I, I've been listening to you for years. He said, you're one of the great singers. He says, everybody in show business knows how great you are. You're a great songwriter. Everybody in show business knows you're a great songwriter, but you never make any money. Because me, I make a lot of money and nobody respects me. <laughs> So what, what do you say to a guy like that, right? I, I think he's the Rodney Dangerfield of songwriters yeah, or something. Yeah. No respect. So he says, I got an idea. He says, why don't you come over to my house? Let's write together. He says, maybe I can teach you how to make money, and you can teach me how to get respect. So that sounded like a good idea for me. So I, I, go, I start going over his house a couple times a week. And the guy had a lot of energy. We wrote a lot of songs. You know, not all good, but some good. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And one day, he, like everybody that does something well, he wanted to produce. So he gets a gig producing Nancy Sinatra. So he says, listen, I need a fourth song for the session on Nancy. He said, I got to go pick up my wife at the beauty parlor. He said, why don't you start something while I'm out and we'll finish it when I get back. I said, great. So I pick up his guitar, I'm banging away, you know, and I said, what the hell do I write for Nancy Sinatra for Christ's sake? You know, oh, she got this famous father. I love my daddy, but it really don't matter what my daddy might say, right? <laughs> Lines like that. I had a line about when I see your laughing face, you know. <laughs> so so Larry comes back, you know, he, said, he says, man, this is the number one song if I ever heard one. He said, I'm going to play it for Nancy tomorrow. He plays it for her. She hates the song. She hates my mother for having me. <laughs> So Larry's now, he's really pissed off. He says, you got to do something with this song. So my friend, Crazy Joe Renda, he had a little country band and he had a girl singer. So we go in with her and we record the song, but she's lazy and she doesn't really learn it properly. So everywhere we take the demo, they go, love the song, hate the girl. Love the song, hate the girl. Finally, I'm at the last guy on my list, a guy named Charlie Koppelman. He says, love the song, hate the girl. But we're recording Dolly Parton next week. He said, give me the song for Dolly. He said, I'll guarantee it'll be the single. This is a great song. I said, and I didn't trust him. I said, I said, Charlie, give me some money. <laughs> so he, he, he has his girl go in the back and write out a check for me. I didn't even look at it. I figured it's a couple of hundred dollars, you know. Right. I'm going down in the elevator and I'm with my little girlfriend at the time. She says, give me that envelope. And she opens it up. She says, holy that baby. She says, he gave you $2,500, which is a fortune in 1978. You know? Especially to me who was living with my mother, like some loser musician, <laughs> you know? And, and uh, so I guess he was serious, right? So in the interim, I get an offer to go to, California and write songs for Warner Brothers. So I'm, I'm finally, I got everything I own in, in, in my car and I'm driving out Route 10 to Los Angeles. Every 20 minutes, they're playing my Dolly Parton record. And uh, the day I, I hit LA, which is about four or five days later, it's number one on the country charts. So I go from not having a hit record for nine years to having a number one record. 
And this was 1979. Uh, 79. Yeah. So I went through all the 70s with no luck. Right. That's, well, you know what? If you're going to go through any period of time to wind up with a Dolly Parton number one, it's a small price to pay. You betcha, Daniel. Yeah. Um, so now comes the 80s and you're doing you're doing a lot of writing. You're playing with the, the beaters. You take over the Troubadour. Uh, I mean, the Troubadour, one of the most legendary nightclubs on planet Earth. Yeah, the guy, the guy, I ran into the the guy. We used to go to this soul food restaurant called Maurice's Snack and Chat. Best fried chicken, best chicken cobbler in town, you know. And and we were the first people that went to her place. Maurice was a woman. <laughs> and, uh, and but my, I used to go with my friend who later became my agent, Danny Robinson. And, uh, and Danny's father managed Doc Severinsen. So next thing you know, Ed McMahon's coming in. All the next time, all the stars are coming to this little dump, soul food place. Became the hottest place in town. So one night I'm in there, and I get up to go to the bathroom, and I tripped over Suzanne Plachette's foot. And Maurice comes out, and she's like <laughs> half, half drunk, and she says, "Billy Vera, you stepped on that lady's foot." I said, oh, I'm sorry. And, and then and this guy comes over to me. He says, uh, hi, my name is Matt Kramer. He said, I manage, I, I run the Troubadour on Monday nights. He said, I hear you have the best band in town. I said, well, we're pretty good, you know, 10. He says, how would you like to play on Monday nights for me? I said, well, man, you know, I, I can't bring 10 guys in there to do 20 minutes. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, you, you start playing at midnight and you can play as long as you want. So I said, well, that's okay. So we, we, we do it, and we figure within my manager at the time, he says, listen, do it. You, you won't make any money, but within six weeks, you'll know if you got something. You'll be playing for the in crowd in Hollywood. So two weeks later, it's lines around the block, and it stayed lines around the block at midnight on a Monday, the worst night of the week, for a year straight. Unbelievable. And we went from having a little band playing for $6 a man a night to meet girls and uh, to, to having the hottest band in town. And, and then, then we can finally get a record deal. And then we get a little hit record with this Japanese company. They, they send us to Tokyo. We win the, the Tokyo Music Festival, a gold prize. And, uh, you know, and it goes on from there. Right. And the one you did for Donald. What, Billy? I'm sorry. I said the record company goes out of business. Yeah. Or the Japanese pull the plug, let's say, put it that way. So we got no record deal for five years. And I'm eking out a living as an actor. You know, when you're from New York, you play Thug of the Week or something like right. that. Yeah, I know that. Uh, yeah. Somebody asked what the name of the song was. It was I Really Got a Feeling, that Dolly. I really did, got right? the feeling. I really got the feeling. Uh, so we got to look for that on Dolly's. So now in, in 81, you do you finally do a, a solo album. Uh, well, before that, Billionaire and a Beat is, uh, you had two minor hits on an album in 81, which kind of like disappeared for a while. And then uh, thanks to the medium of television, one of your songs winds up in a little show called Family Ties with uh, Michael J. Fox yeah. and all those people. And it was really supposed to be a background music uh, song. Am I correct? It really wasn't supposed to take on 
a life of its own. Am I correct? Well, what happened was I'm sitting at home in my little apartment one day waiting for my acting agent to call. <laughs> and and this guy calls me up. He says, this is the same Billy Vera that has the, has the band? I said, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I always kept my number in the book. Because I figure anybody that, that would wanted to bother me was too would be too stupid to look me up in the phone book. <laughs> so this guy... <laughs> He says, man, he says, we saw you at the club the other night. He said, uh, we heard you do this song that we thought would be good for this episode of this show I produced called Family Ties. I said, great. What's the name of it? He said, I don't know. I said, well, I knew that right then it was at this moment because nobody could ever remember the title. Right. And uh, so we, we, we established that. <laughs> and I told him to call up Warner Brothers and get a license for them. And I get some mail. Now, I had had songs on TV shows before, but no mail, a few hundred bucks, you know. And I said, wow, this song must have something. People must like it. They're actually writing me letters. So I, I, I called a few record companies where I still had somebody that would answer the phone to me. <laughs> and, uh, and nobody was interested in letting me redo the song. But I used to have lunch periodically with this guy, Richard Foose, that owned a label called Rhino Records. They put out oldies. Yep. And I, I told him the story, you know, about family ties. I said, hey, Richard, how many records do you need to sell to break even? He says, ah, we could sell a couple of thousand. We could probably break even. We got low overhead at the company here. I said, I'll tell you, I'll guarantee you 2,000 records if you, put, if you make an album. I'll, I'll do the best of the records I did for a Japanese company. He said, sure. And he only did it because he liked me. You know, he never thought he was going to make any money. Right. Well, it came, by the time they got it out, we missed the reruns. And then the following season, the girl breaks up with Michael J. Fox's character, and they use the song again. And Michael's so sad. Right. And then this time, the, the story of the song, Boy Loses Girl, is the same as the story of the episode, Boy Loses Girl. Wow. And it was a perfect fit. And, and, and suddenly it was that rare thing, a grassroots hit. You know, right. people started calling radio stations. They started calling records. So where can we get this record? Blah, blah, blah. And the thing, you know, Rhino didn't know how to promote records. Right. They didn't know what the, the meaning of the word payola. Right. It was just, the people demanded this, this song. And next thing you know, it's number one. So for those of you who are living under a rock or on the planet Mars for the past 33 years, this is the song that will forever embed Billy Vera into the Americana music scene. Mike, will you please play some of that little known hit? What? Did you think I would do at this moment when you're standing before me with tears in your eyes trying to tell me I found you another and you just don't love me. Uh, you know, 
we have some guests on the show, Billy. Like last week, we had your old friend uh, Vito Picone. Oh, we had okay. Joey D. Uh, but you know, Joey D, the twist, and Vito, where are you, little star? Right away, when the song starts, you know the song. Yeah. Your song title is What Did You Think? <laughs> That's the song title. And you know, I told you, and I'll tell our listeners when your song was a major hit. Uh, top of the charts for 21 weeks in 87. I wasn't listening to a lot of radio. I was on the road. I was listening to music in my house, television. I go to see Wayne Newton and Tom Jones back-to-back -back nights at Westbury Music Fair, yeah. and they both did your song. And I looked at the person, who I, the girl I was with, and I said, wow, this song's pretty good. I, it might go somewhere. <laughs> because I said if Wayne Newton and Tom Jones do it, that's yeah. got to be a hit. Uh, so, of course, we know that uh, there was much more to that. But having a top, a number one hit on the charts 21 weeks must have been uh, the cherry on the icing. Well, it, it changed my life. Yeah. You know, it, it really did. Because, I, I mean, by that time, I was 42 years old, you know. And, and too old to be a rock and roll star. Next thing you know, I'm on American Bandstand. I'm on Johnny Carson nine times. Johnny Carson? Mike? That's a cue. There we oh, go. Hey, Johnny. How you doing, brother? You, <laughs> you know, years later, after Johnny died, uh, one of the, the guy that used to write uh, Johnny's monologues, he, he became a friend of mine. And he told me, he said, you know, you were... You were Johnny's second favorite singer after Tony Bennett. I said, what? I said, why didn't he tell me this when he was alive? <laughs> you know? But I, I, that made me feel pretty good. I think that's a pretty good uh, addition to your resume. So, um, but being an actor, I mean, I'm reading some of the things that you've done. And, and so you've been on Days of Our Lives. Uh, you're in Wise Guy. Baywatch, Boy Meets Girl, Beverly Hills 90210. Uh, uh, those were just your acting credits. Yeah. The one I'm most known for is a is a, a little-known movie called The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. Right. <laughs> I was going to save that for last. Oh, okay. That, that's become, I got people to this day come up to me and recite lines <laughs> from that movie. My my character was a guy was Pinky Carruthers, and people at the time would would bring me pink gifts. Some of the places we played when the record was hot, they weren't there to hear the guy sing at this moment. They were there to see Pinky. Right. It was wild. I mean, I they, actually have that movie on VHS. It's a crazy movie, isn't it? Yeah. Jeez. It, yeah. It was pretty good. Pretty good. And then uh, you weren't done with television. You wound up. Uh, uh, doing the theme song for Empty Nest. Yeah. And you also did a song for a sitcom that was pretty decent called The King of Queens. Nine years, baby. Nine years. Nine Michael, cue time. My eyes are getting weary. My back is getting tight. I'm sitting here in traffic on the Queensboro Bridge tonight. But I don't care because all I want to do just catch my check and drive right home to you. Fabulous. 
Cause baby, all my life I will be driving home to you. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You're, you're right up there with All in the Family, the Jeffersons. You're, you're right up there with Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley. You know, there's a lot of TV shows that had instrumentals. You know, uh, yeah. MASH and Dallas. And, but then you go to a song with vocals and you're there. And that's a perfect song for that show. Yes. You know, just you know, you know what's funny thing, Mike, how that happened? Uh, a friend of mine had just taken over as a head of music for uh, Screen Gems. And he called me up one day, he says, let me take you to lunch. He said, we got this new show and, and, they, and they, they insist upon this song. So we, we're riding in the car and he plays me the song. He said, what do you think? Because he told me what the show was about. You know, it's, it's a, a UPS driver with a hot wife. Basically, it's, it's the honeymooners, you know, right. a, a fat, loud mouth guy with a hot wife. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I said, well, the song, I said, the, the way it was on the demo, I said, it sounds like Paul Simon's idea of a country song. <laughs> I said, it's, it's, not, it's not right for this character. He says, you know, I feel the same way. He says, but, but, but we're stuck with the song. He says, can you do anything to, to make it right for the show? I said, well, it needs to be dumber, man. You know? <laughs> He says, can you think you can do that? I says, listen, nobody does dumb better than we do. <laughs> Billy, did, you did you take that song out of something that you previously wrote, or did you just come no, up? I, I, didn't, I didn't write the song. Oh, you didn't write it? No, I just sang it. Oh, okay. But I got to use the beaters on there, so they, they get little checks every, every year, too. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So now, uh, I, I want to show everybody the CD cover art. When you go searching on Amazon or anywhere else, look for this cover on everybody. This is the CD you need in your collection. Uh, th this is Americana. This is Americana. You are forever embedded in people's minds. Uh, and the funny part, Billy, is that your song sometimes is misconstrued as a positive love song. I've heard it played at weddings. Uh, I know. People ask, it used to, when, when, every, when we used to do weddings once in a while, People would say, oh, you're going to you got to do at this moment. I said, what are you crazy? I said, I got another one. I got another one called Hopeless Romantic. I said, that's the one you want to hear at your wedding. That's a positive love song. Right. Or even the Dolly Parton song is it's a is a pop. You know, I really got the feeling that I'll love you for a long, long time, you know, well, but not at this moment, dude. <laughs> you know what I mean? Unbelievable. You know, I got another one that's even worse than that. The first Billy and the Beaters song we did was called I Can Take Care of Myself, right? And it's about this guy that thinks he can take care of himself, but this woman is just abusing him, taking total advantage of him, right? But it's it, the melody is sort of a happy melody. Right. And people always say, oh, my God, it's such an uplifting song. I can take care of myself. How? I said, don't you listen to the words you <laughs> I go to all the trouble to write these, these great stories and these lyrics, and you don't even listen to them. You know? It cracks me up, Unbelievable. man. Unbelievable. Uh, we have a picture of you uh, uh -oh. with Grammy, uh, but the Grammy was not for uh, your recordings. It was, uh, <laughs> it was for liner notes that you wrote on, um, on Ray Charles's album. 
Well, compilation. Yeah, I, 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 I've actually, I've sort of considered an expert on Ray Charles. He's sort of a hero of mine. I've done seven different uh, liner notes for him, and this was the most, the most recent one. Uh, they, they did the complete ABC Paramount recordings of, uh, it's not recordings, but his complete singles of ABC. So they asked me to write the notes for that, and and uh, luckily, uh, I guess everybody felt sorry for me because I had been nominated several times for Grammys, but had never won. So finally, in 19, uh, 2013, I guess it was, I, I won. Yes. I, and I'll tell you, it's a funny thing. My date was this dear friend of mine, a, an actress named Augie Duke, and uh, and and this this fan of mine. Uh, is, a, is a limousine driver so named Paul and he says he says I'll tell you what I'll, I'll, I'll drive you guys down to the Grammys you come in style right I said cool man so the girl that was supposed to do Augie's hair was late so now my friend Paul shows up not in your usual town car he shows up at a big Rolls Royce <laughs> <laughs> and he's driving like 70 miles an hour to try to get down to where the, the Grammys were. So we're, we're rushing to the, up the stairs and then we finally get to the seat and I'm, I'm actually in the process of sitting down when he calls my name. And I, I get up and I run down the aisle up to the stage and, and Augie's going and she's, got her, she's following me after she got her, her, little, her little iPhone clicking as she's running after me. She says, you won, baby, you won. Oh my God, you won. And the whole audience is like goofing on us, man, and laughing on And I'm out of breath and I go, holy shit. And then the audience laughs some more. And I'm like, you know, it was one of those weird things. I loved it. But it was awful lot of fun. And, and then and then we drove back in the, in the, in the big Rolls Royce that Paul drove. We, Felt like big shots for the day. You know, uh, this is just a little podcast, uh, but it's grown, Billy. And I, if there is anybody out there in the recording arts and science, if this man doesn't get a Grammy <laughs> at this moment, uh, there is something wrong with the voting process. You want to hear, hear a sad story about that? Well, I'd rather hear a happy story about I that. Would but too. but <laughs> you know, the, 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 the rules of the of the Grammys for best record of the year, it has to be a new record released that year. Well, my record of at this moment was a reissue. Right. It maybe maybe we should have uh, nominated had it nominated as an oldie or something like or you know a, a historical record. But all the guys that were on the committee, you know they they kind of you know a lot of them knew me. And they said, "Oh man, Billy, we, you know, we, we, we talked about how could we get you to win for this year because it's it's a great song and a, you know a great record." He said, "But he said it, the rules wouldn't allow it because it it was it was not a new recording." So that was that was the sad part. But well, there is something called the Grammy Record Hall of Fame now, and we hope that they listen to it and listen to us and put you on uh, because there are certain songs that. If they ever, if we ever get invaded by Mars, if we, <laughs> if we live through 2020, and, yeah, and five million years from now, Martians come down here. 
we believe that at this moment should be in the top 100 songs of all time. Oh, thank you for that. So now you did a, you did a, most recently besides your your voiceover work and and the producing, you did you make a big band jazz record, which I think was like a pet project to you, right? I, I always wanted to make a big band record, you know, and and I of course they cost money and nobody was willing to put up any money. But when Michael Bublé recorded at this moment and sold 10 million albums, I I, I used one of the checks. <laughs> And, and that, that was able to pay for, you know, the cost of doing an 18-piece band album. But then I, I came across the promise. By then, everybody was doing big band albums, you know. And I said, what, what, how, what can I do to make mine different from every other putz that, that, that does a big band album of standards? I said, they all do the same old tired songs. And I then somebody said to me, said, well, you know, go with what you know. I said, what do you mean? So, well, you know black music better than anybody on the planet. They said, why don't you do something about that? I said, oh, you mean I could do songs written by black songwriters of the 1920s, the 1930s, and 1940s? You know, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Buddy Johnson, all those, Billy Strayhorn. And so that's what I decided to do. So it was it was all songs written by the the great black songwriters uh, of the era of of that early uh, golden years, and uh, the album got a lot of play, you know, on on all the the best jazz stations in the country, and I was very proud of it. You know? That was also on a label called Varese uh, Sarabande, which yeah. was like Rhino Records. I think, matter of fact, I think they bought Rhino Records. No, no, no. Uh, Warner Brothers bought Rhino. Warner Brothers. But this is all available on the web. Everybody, you got to go and, and you got to do your due diligence on this man. This guy, is, he's got so much. I mean, I wasted 40 pieces of paper and ink. And right? let's not forget my books. I'm writing. I'm getting books. to that. I'm getting. Please oh, don't rush sorry, me. Gene, sorry, Gene. Sorry. I know what I'm doing, Billy. Look, I'm going. <laughs> so, You're like I, the I, FBI, dude. You, you got a file on me. I told you you would have the most fun doing this if you allowed me to do this honor. I told you you would have. I am having fun, man. This is a ball. I, I think we got to do part two. I think we got to do part two. But listen, yes, you're also a published author. So everybody, listen to this. Vintage Neon, Los Angeles, 1979. Uh, now, these were pictures you took of all different neon signs in the middle of the night. Yeah, when I first moved to L.A., I, my my former bass player from New York, Chuck Fiore, he was uh, he was already living here. So he we would drive around at night. You know, we hadn't met any girls yet, so we drive around just the two of us. And and I, I was fascinated by all. In those days, there was a lot of neon signs in L.A. And so I said, Let, let's go around and take pictures of neon. So I just go around and I say, Stop here, stop here, Chucky. You know, <laughs> click click, and I take pictures. And I never did anything with him. And then this girl I knew, Tamela D'Amico, she's a really good singer, actress. She was at my house one day. She said, you should do something with these pictures. She's one of these real go-getter chicks, you know. And uh, and she's, so she she sort of helped me get to put the book together. And uh, and I wrote all the little, you know, the little words. And that was the first one. 
And then, then people have always been after me. They say, you got so many good stories. You ought to, you ought to write a, a memoir, you know, an autobiography. And you did. And I did. Right, right after the first book came the second book. Yeah, Harlem to Hollywood. Harlem to Hollywood. I, I, and the purest treatise on the subject ever produced. And now it's not only a book, it's a documentary available on Amazon. Yep. Uh, so that, give us, what was that? Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. So give us, how did they translate a book into the movie? Well, it, the same stories, you know, only this time with the movie, we got a lot of really cool people in there. Dolly Parton was kind enough to, to come on, uh, film a little bit at, at her own home studio, talking about the record, the song. Uh, we got uh, Joey Diesel in there. Um, Tim Hauser from the Manhattan Transfers in there. Richard Roundtree, another Westchester guy from New York yep. Shaft. Um, I'm trying to think of. Uh, 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 Dion Warwick's in there. Nona, Nona Hendricks from Patti LaBelle. The Blue. Mabel John, Little Willie John's sister. Wow. Unbelievable. Mabel and I were, Mabel was on the same show with us uh, at the, the first time we played the Apollo. And, and she was in, in our dressing room when she got the word that her brother had died in prison, Little Willie John. Shame. Great singer. So we got a lot of really cool people in there. And we came up with some footage of me and Judy Clay on stage at the Apollo in color. And it's, it's this, this kid had shot it back in 1968. And this is in the documentary. Yeah, yeah. Harlem to Hollywood, Amazon Prime. If you are not tired after this interview, go there and buy it tonight. Send Billy a message that you saw him on my podcast and that we bring people like Billy viewers. It's what we're here to do, to let people know. We're not done with you yet. You're not going nowhere. Because <laughs> you have something that many people aspire to get, but never get it. It's behind your head. It is the ultimate accolade. You have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, the corner of Vine and Yucca, which is in front of Capitol Records. Correct. Tell us, Billy. When you got the call for that, what did you think? Well, that was uh, that was thanks to uh, one of our great stars, uh, Angie Dickinson. We, she and I, had met on uh, on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and uh, she just sort of started coming to the clubs and seeing our our band all the time. And she she became sort of like the hostess with the mostess. She'd be she'd be in the dressing room, you know, and 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 she'd inter she she memorized. This is how cool this lady was, you know. She was one of the Rat Pack, you know, with Frank and all that. But she she memorized all the names of the ten guys in my band and my crew, <laughs> and she would she would introduce. Oh, oh, Gene, this is uh this is Jerry Peterson. On he plays saxophone, you know, all that. And she just was so good to us. And she nominated me. And I said, geez, Angie, I said, I'm not a big enough name. You know, they'll make fun of me. You know, they'll they'll mock me if, if, if I, you know, I mean, look at all the big, real big stars that don't have a star. She says, no, you don't understand how it works. I said, well, tell me, enlighten me. She said, the way it works is somebody nominates you. 
then it goes up to the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce. And then they vote. And they vote based on not how who's the biggest name. It's it's what your career has done for the city of Hollywood itself. And look at you. You've you've made records in Hollywood. You've done movies in Hollywood. You've done TV shows in Hollywood. You've you've done a disc jockey show in Hollywood. You've played nightclubs in Hollywood, theaters. You know, you have you have contributed more than you think in Hollywood. I said, whoa. I said, well, I, I guess you know maybe you're right. She said, no, I'm right. She said, just 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 take it, <laughs> take the compliment. I said, okay. So I go down there and, and, and it was it was really cool. I have to say, you know, a lot of people showed up. I mean, they'll show up for anything <laughs> when somebody's getting a star. But it was, they ask you where you want it to be. I said, well, I just signed a contract with Capitol Records. I said, can you get it close to Capitol Records? And so they did. And then just to be on the safe side, the guy that signed me to Capitol was a guy named Joe Smith, who was one of these, he was a great speaker. And he, and his style of speaking was, it was irreverent. In other words, he, he wouldn't take it too seriously, too pompous. And I, and I, knew, I knew that was what was needed so that, the, that people wouldn't make fun of me. So, you know, the first thing Joe says, oh, what do you say about Billy Vera? He says, gee, oh, I get it. Billy Vera, he gets a hit record every 20 years, whether he needs one or not. <laughs> and that was his opening line. And, and so everybody laughed. And from that point on, they were on my side, you know. And, and thank you, Joe Smith. You know. you know, Billy, I think people have been on your side, uh, but you just haven't known. I want to tell you some of the compliments you've gotten tonight. One guy just called you a hidden gem. Uh, among here we go, our friend Sally G. Uh, your your Amazon documentary has four and a half stars wow. out of five. I that's think uh, I think that's a good record. And uh, Billy, I I don't know what to say except thank you, and that I hope I can entice you maybe six months down the line to do this again. Uh, well, you geez, have a you're so much fun, and, and you you make it so so fun. You're a pro. And I'll be happy to come back anytime you want me. Thank you. Uh, is it BaileyVera.com, the website? Vera.com, yeah. Everybody, all my followers, my thousands of friends, my hundreds of thousands of family members, please, BaileyVera.com, follow his page. Tell the people that now you have seen and heard from the man himself why an overnight success took 27 years. Ladies and gentlemen, as we do every week, a big round of applause for our guest, Mr. Billy Vera. Thank you, Billy. Thank you, Gene. Thank you. God bless Bye, you. Thank you, Billy. See Billy, you get a chance. Go, go read the comments. You, you, there's so many great comments for well, you. How do I find them? And, 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 Billy, I'm going to show you what Ed Sullivan used to do after a great show. <laughs> Where do we go from here? You know, know where Ed grew up? You know, used to throw, you know where Ed Sullivan grew up? Porchester. Porchester. That's right. Every third house in Porchester claims that he grew, that Ed lived there. <laughs> that's great, Billy. Enjoy the rest of your night, and thank you. God bless you. All right, boys. Thank you, you Billy. Too.
Have a good See night. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wow. That's something else, Gene. Gene, I got to tell you, every week, okay, Lou Rawls, Dionne Warwick, Ricky Nelson, Jerry Lee Lewis, it doesn't end, Dolly Parton, you know, and he even tripped over Susan Planchette's foot. You, you know, I, I was wondering what you were doing now that you're off camera. Uh, and the reason you're off camera is to let the boxes be bigger. I want, peop- I want people to know you are not thrown off uh, camera at all. But uh, we want to make the boxes bigger. And I'm wondering to myself, what is he doing now? I, I want to see your list. I, I, this is incredible. I, I just can't. Well, Gene, you know what? You know what we should do since this podcast is gaining traction? I know we should write a book first. No, 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 no. Not write a book. Why don't we have our own awards? Why, why can't we give our own awards out to people? I'll tell you why we can't. Because every guest that we have had on, whether they're hit makers or local celebrities who I don't all deserve an award. Okay. So we'll two reasons. Two reasons. Number one, they contribute to society and the happiness of mankind. And number two, they have allowed me to bring them on this show, not knowing how it was going to turn out. And if I tell you the accolades we have gotten uh, by our guests, and I believe next year, there's only two people that have told me no so far. I got a feeling by next year, they're going to be calling me to get on the show. Have people like Billy Vera and Joey D and Vito Pacone telling their friends that the reminiscing podcast is one of the best they've ever done. World word can only spread like wildfire. Gene, it's not Moonshine Johnson that said no, right? <laughs> I'm not even going to answer that. I'm not even going to answer that. Let's go. I can't stand you sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I love me. So listen, great. We love the comments, everybody. Keep in mind, I can't see them because they're very small on my screen, but we do try to get to some of them. Uh, we got a wonderful sponsor last week, Joe Remini. We're going to put him on system. If anybody out there has a small or large business, we are now being seen all over the United States, tri-state area. We're also on YouTube. We're also on ItalianAmericanRadio.com. And I believe, Mike, you have, what, four other podcasts that you do? Uh, at least. <laughs> we, have, we have four or five other podcasts. I'm going to be doing another one featuring our local celebrities, people that never had a hit record and big movies, but I believe they got great stories to tell. I'm also developing another one called Family Royalty, where we'll in, we will continue the way we did with Tito Puente Jr., we're going to continue with people like Bobby Wilson, the son of the late great Jackie Wilson, the Nelson twins, and people like that. Tommy Cash, Johnny Cash's brother. So we're going to start doing a lot of other podcasts, a lot of other streaming. So if you advertise on this show, you'll be all over the world. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, it's not what you see tonight. This podcast gets shared thousands of times a week to all over the world. So if you have any product, through the mail or store, advertise with us. We will do our best to get the word out. Next week, uh, we got an old friend of mine, Mike. This is the only actor to be in the original Godfather and the TV show, The Sopranos. My dear friend, Lou Martini Jr. will be our special guest next week. That's not Lou in the center with the Elvis jumpsuit. Okay, that's me. (laughs) But uh, we're going to have Lou on next week. Uh, you could say what you want. 
uh, he was the only actor in the original Godfather and the Sopranos. And we're going to let Lou tell you his special story next week. Uh, Mike, I got to tell you, Mike, I am so happy that you are doing this for me. And I got to tell you, I love the pink shirt. Love the pink shirt. You know, real men wear pink, Gene. I do. And I'm going to wear my pink shirt next week. (laughs) Can you wear your purple hat next week? I will. We got a hello from our good friend, Stan Zitska. Stan was our first guest. Uh, He was going to be in January. Larry Chance got sick. Stan Zitska stepped up to the plate. Love you, Stan. The Del Satins. The original backing vocals for Dion on on Runaround Sue and one all the great at Sally G, a great promoter. Uh, This is... This is great. I'm loving this. Um, Mike, we got so much to do. Uh, but again, Pure, real quick, Gene, the, the, our sponsors again, Pure Organic. Yeah, Pure Organic Dry Cleaners on Tremont Avenue in Trog's Neck. See Wally. Dream Destinations Travel. Call them up. Happy birthday Friday to Howard. SweetHealedCBD.com. Uh, tell them Creative CPA Francisco. Check them out on the Reminiscing with Gene DiNapoli page on Facebook. All our sponsors can be found in our offers section. Right. And like uh, Gene said, if you want to, if you're interested in being a sponsor, send a message. Send we have a, message. a lot of different um, programs available that'll span yeah. all over all different podcasts. Let, last week alone, we just had thousands within the next morning. Yes. Uh, eyeballs on it. So it's and if you enjoy the show, please share it because the more shares you do, the bigger we get. And not better guests, because I think we've already done that. Maybe bigger, well-known guests that you might have to say, hmm, Billy Vera, what has he done? Well, he's had a hit record every 20 years. Not Billy Vera. Maybe some more household names. But tonight, we hope that we made Billy Vera a household name. And like we always do, we wish you the best. Ladies and gentlemen, tomorrow is a very important day for us in the United States of America. Go out and vote. Vote who's best for our country. Not just because you like the way somebody looks or whatever. Let's do it the right way for the best for America. Mike, thank you once again. And um, send us your comments. Get out, everybody. And God, everybody. Bless you, and God bless America. Thanks for watching. to the game.